everyone is sexually unique. This is the only universally valid generalization about sex. And that is to quote my next guest, Michael Castleman, my first ever sex expert on Let's Keep It Real. And I've been doing this for over seven years, people. Ooh, I am so excited for you to hear him. Everything I threw at him, from my questions to the questions that my listeners wrote in for him, he answered without judgment and made me feel so comfortable. I was a little nervous about this. Was I going to turn beet red? Was I going to giggle and laugh? And guess what? None of those. It was amazing and it was so informative and relaxed for sure. And his new book, Sizzling Sex for Life, there is everything and anything in there for everybody. Talk about let's keep it real. Hoochie mama, you're going to have fun. I know you're going to get so many questions answered. You're going to want to buy his book. Come on. We are sexy beings. We are sexual in our own right. And let's just explode with that excitement. Have fun. And as always, I appreciate your support. Share. Rate. I know you're going to want to share and rate this one for sure. There's going to be a lot of people going to like, oh, you have to listen to this. Support us on Patreon. We really appreciate it. This is Let's Keep It Real with Sandy Joy Weston, your weekly dose of positivity with awesome stories and guests from all over the world. It's an opportunity to learn some great new things and expand your mind. We'll tackle topics from all areas of life, and as always with Sandy, the sky's the limit. Hello, hello, my let's keep it real people. Okay, calm down. I know you're so excited. The first sex expert we've had on the show in maybe four years, so for most of you, This is brand new. You hammered me with questions. We'll try to get some of them in there, but you can always look them up and get his book, which is awesome. So let me tell you about Michael Castleman before I bring him on. During a career spanning almost 50 years, journalist Michael has become the most popular sex writer in the world. Woohoo! His twice monthly blog, which I checked out, is awesome, All About Sex, launched in 2009, has attracted more than 50 million views. Oh, isn't that awesome? So awesome. I love to hear that. His free question and answer site, greatsexguidance.com, launched in 2010, has attracted 2 million views. His new book, Sizzling Sex for Life, I don't think there's a question in there he hasn't answered, by the way, has been acclaimed by three dozen leading sexologists. (laughs) And I did check it out. My books are like, I'm like, wait a minute, I only have three things. He's got it going on and on. Check out their endorsements on the book's Amazon page. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so excited. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to uh, be with you. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun for people. They were like, okay, you know what, Sandy, you have to tell me ahead of time that, you know, when this is going live, because I don't want to just be driving in my car. I said, ooh, this is exciting. I think we're all getting a little antsy and bored being at home. And I know before I get into it, I'm going to ask you your word, but a lot of my friends are going, listen, I need new things because this is all I got. And I'm sure you've been hearing that a lot. But before we get into that, if I was going to ask you one word to best des- describe your past 30 days, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, what would that word be, Michael? Busy. Busy. Is that because of your new book coming out? You're doing a lot of tours? Well, yes. It's mostly because of book promotion and sending out copies. And, you know, it's it takes work to uh, launch a book. And so I'm doing that work. And I'm glad I've got to do it because otherwise things would be a little slow with COVID (laughs) and all. Yeah. Yeah. And it's perfect timing. So thank you. I was researching you and I realized that you've did some other books that I love nature's cures and new healing herbs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, 
I have been a health journalist with health defined broadly as, you know, optimal wellness and mainstream medicine and alternative therapies, nutrition, fitness, and sex. Hmm. I did that for about 35 years. And then in 2005, I kind of retired uh, from health writing and focused uh, more exclusively on sexuality, which I've been pretty much writing about exclusively for the last 15 years. Um, and, um, you know, there's so much health information on the uh, web. Uh, and um, But when I wrote about sex, I would get thank you notes. And, um, and it's really the thank you notes that uh, pushed me to focus on sex for the last 15 years. It's a great subject, and, and there's wonderful research, and there's so much mythology, and uh, people have lots of sex questions. Uh, but what really keeps me going, uh, frankly, is the thank you notes. You know, I, I was listening to you say that before on one of your interviews, and I thought, isn't that awesome? I mean, so many people feel awkward about this subject or it's taboo. But I can tell you, even just from watching you on one interview, you, you probably just relax them because you're so ease and flow with it. Like, no, I don't think they could hit you with any question that would shock you. Well, no, no question shocked me. I mean, there are some questions I can't answer off the top of my head, but um, if that's the case, I'll research it for people and find out the answer to the best of my ability. And so much of, of sexual uh, confusion and people's uh, sexual problems really uh, often just stem from uh, lack of information or getting the wrong information. And so when you provide accurate information for people that really helps about half the people with sexual issues yeah so <laughs> i know i think you said the book took you three years to write is that correct yes well i've been writing about sexuality since the early 1970s i'm, I'm 71 years old and i've been writing about this since i was in my early 20s um, and following sex research but um so Yes, I had a runway of 40 years or so, but then uh, focused the focused work on Sizzling Sex for Life uh, took three years to write that book. Twenty is it? Did I get this right? Two thousand and five hundred studies. Yes, the the one of the um, there are two things that are unique about Sizzling Sex for Life. You know, there's a zillion sex books out there, but. Um, what makes this book different is that, number one, it is comprehensive. It considers sexual issues from cradle to grave, from the sexual implications of circumcision to the growing phenomenon of partner sex in nursing homes, and then everything in between. So it's, it's more comprehensive than any other book, and it is entirely evidence-based. I uh, uh, brought together, I amalgamated... 70 years of sex research, 2,500 studies are uh, cited in my book um, to, you know, bolster the arguments I make and to tell people, you know, what's what about sex. You know, and I love the fact that, you know, you said, you know, being a journalist, you know, you love research. And so, it must have been so much fun for you to always like when you undercover something new or you can answer somebody's question that, you know, they just felt so lost. Yeah. Yeah. The um, you know, it's such a shame. There's a great there's a tremendous amount of sex research that goes on in the world and particularly in the United States. But almost none of it gets out of the journals to the public. You know, every once in a while, there's some, you know, headline grabbing sex study. Um, but by and large, most sex information does not reach the public. And sex researchers, they don't, they don't reach the public either. Their mission is to do the research and publish in journals and then hope that somebody notices. Well, I'm the guy who notices and tries to bring it to the attention yeah. of the public. Yeah. You know, I want to start with one of the questions right away because it was... I got so many of the same question and they were from high school and college kids. Cause I have that audience too. And a lot of them were saying, you know, they were born in a male's body, but they feel like they're a female. They 
uh, transgender, uh, they want to have an operation, or, you know, they just don't identify who they are, and they're trying to explain it to their parents that they want to be they or them. And they, if I can just put it into one question that I got over and over is how can I tell my parents is not their fault? How do I explain to them how I feel? Um, well, the issue of transgenderdom is the hot thing happening in sexuality and gender, and it is the it's it's um, new territory for almost everybody. Um, and so, what I would suggest is family therapy for the for the group. The mm. person who is considering transitioning uh, can uh, uh, consult a family therapist and then invite their parents to um, participate. You know, uh, uh, everyone, I know several families who have dealt with this and, um, and it's a very hard issue for everybody. Yes. Um, you know, and, and that, and I'm not vilifying anyone. I'm not saying anybody's a bad person. Everybody's a good person in this um, if they have an open heart. But it's very hard to transition mm -hmm. genders and it's very hard to watch your child do this because, you know, you've spent your whole life raising this person who you thought was fill in the blank. Mm. And then it turns out they want to be something else or they are something else. And it's, it's um, extremely disconcerting. But I will say this from the um, people I know who have um, either transitioned and have parents who have been with them along the way. Um, it is a long journey. It is a five to 10 year process really before people become wow. really comfortable and you have to give it a lot of time. And that is why I think that family therapy is uh, probably the best way to go. Uh, assuming that everyone is still speaking to each other, which yeah. sometimes yeah. they're not. Yeah. I got a lot of kids saying that their parents are blaming themselves. Like, what did they do wrong? And they keep, they keep saying, it's not you. But so I, I love the idea of going to a therapist. Well, you know, it's very similar to what happened uh, in the uh, 1970s and 80s with the explosion of gay consciousness. People came out as gay, which was difficult. And it was hard for their parents, too. Yeah. Um, and uh, particularly parents of uh, gay men who were looking at a situation where they might not have grandchildren. And this is very important to a lot of people. Um, so again, uh, uh, professional counseling, I think, is, um, is uh, warranted here and it's very helpful. Uh, and um, <clears throat> it, it doesn't necessarily make things easier yeah. It just makes the difficulty more organized and something that you can cope with. Yeah, I like that. All right, my next question that I got, I'm trying to do it in order of priority. So many women sent me this. They were married to the same man for 20 or 30 years, and now they're trying to get back in the game after being divorced. They have no clue where to start and how to feel appealing and sexy again. This one woman said, I'm in my 50s. I have strong drives and desires, but how do I even start after being with the same man for 30 years? Um, well, the short answer is I don't know because <laughs> all of this is, it's very personal. And okay. some people, it's very individual. You know, everyone, there's only one universally valid sexual generalization, and that is that everyone is sexually unique. Mm -hmm. There are clear patterns in the way people respond sexually, but basically everyone is sexually unique. Our sexuality is as unique as our DNA or our fingerprints. And so on the one hand, you have to figure this out for yourself. On the other hand, um, the best way to find a new mate is to live your life exuberantly, engaged in activities that excite you, and see who else is excited by the same thing. Uh, you know, the, the, um, the standard operating procedure now is people go on online to uh, mm -hmm. dating and matchmaking sites, and they fill out these profiles that may or may not be honest, 
and they hope to, you know, reap a harvest of a great number of people who think they're fantastic. Well, you know, sometimes that works, and all I can say is good luck with that. <laughs> but I think, for me, and, and uh, relationship therapists I've uh, interviewed, the, the most important thing about uh, being in a relationship is to be excited about who you are and hope someone else can share that excitement. And the best way to do that is to be involved in activities you enjoy and see who else enjoys them and then see if you enjoy those people. I love it. I think Sally Bell will be happy with that answer. I hope All right, so. Sally, get out there. All right, next one from, these are all made up names, Johnny. Johnny is having tr trouble keeping an erection. His wife thinks it's her, but he swears it's not. Does it have anything to do with his age? He just turned 59. Okay. Um, well, here I would suggest that they pick up a copy of Sizzling Sex for Life because it has a very extensive discussion of erection issues at oh. all ages. And um, at age 59, uh, this caller is uh, in the midst of what uh, sexologists call, um, you know, erection dissatisfaction, erection changes. Uh, in the 50s is when men start to lose their erections, and there's no way to sugarcoat it. This is a natural process that happens to 90% of men. Oh, when, wow. If you, if you, if you survey men uh, over 65, uh, 90% of them will say their erections are not what they used to be. And about 10% will say, I've got no problems. So the, that 10% of guys, all I can say is, hey, you know, count your blessings. You're very lucky. <laughs> but for nine out of 10 men, erections change and eventually fade. That's the bad news. Now, the good news is that you can have sizzling sex without an erection. And uh, sexologists and sex therapists have a term for it, you, you, um, you stop having intercourse and you start having what they call outer course, which is everything but. So it's kissing, hugging, rolling around, mutual whole body massage, hand jobs, oral sex, uh, maybe some kink, maybe some toys. It's all the other ways to play. And um, if you approach later life sex, with an open heart and an experimental attitude. Many older people say they have the best sex of their lives after 60, even if the guy can't get it up, even if they're not having intercourse anymore. Um, uh, it's a mistake to make a fetish out of intercourse. You know, older men lose their erections, but older women have problems with intercourse too. M many, many older women suffer postmenopausal vaginal dryness and atrophy, which mm. is thinning of the vaginal tissue that makes intercourse uncomfortable, even with lots of lubricant. So the guy can't get it up. The woman is uncomfortable in intercourse and older lovers who stay sexual almost always just stop having intercourse and uh, get into all the other things, particularly oral sex, um, which is uh, key to uh, many women's ability to have orgasms at every age, not just older women, but at every age. So uh, I would say for this guy, um, he and his wife should read the erection chapter in my book. They should also read the chapter on older sex that goes into outer course in detail. And I'm sure there are other things in the book that will um, interest them as they are navigating this um, difficult but you know yeah. expected life transition and it's it's just a change and I can say that again in, in a year or two um, of working on this I think they can find new erotic happiness. Yeah I'm glad you said that because the next question this guy was saying you know he is 65 and he's feeling like he's the only one of his friends that's having this issue and the fact that, you know, they're like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And <laughs> listening to you, I don't think they're all great. Like that he's not in this alone if it's 90%. Um, you know, men lie about their erection function. Men lie constantly about it. And the research on it is very interesting. I mean, you have to look at a lot, a lot of studies. 
if you just go out there and ask a, a random thousand guys uh, who are over 65, can you still get it up? A whole lot of them are going to say yes when that's not true. And the best research was done by an Australian team who, um, who, did, who are in the process of doing an ongoing study of older men's experiences in life. And this study was already going for five or six years with periodic interviews with these guys uh, before they asked anything about sex. And so what happened was the men in the study felt comfortable with the researchers and felt like they knew them and felt like mm -hmm. they could be honest. And when the researchers finally got around to saying, are you having erection issues? 90% of them said they were. So it's really, um, if, if a guy feels like he's the only one with erection problems, that is simply not true. The vast majority of older men have erection issues, even with the drugs. You know, people say, oh, just take uh, Viagra or Cialis. No, even with the drugs, a lot of older men uh, really have uh, weak uh, erections at best and are much happier getting into outer course rather than stomping and groaning about how they can't have intercourse. Yeah. So there you go, Bobby, you're not alone. All right. Next question, which I'm looking at one of your main points, solo sex is the basis of sexuality. And this woman is saying whenever she wants to masturbate, her husband thinks, wait, what am I doing wrong? Am I not satisfying you? And she's trying to explain to him, no, it's not. So I would love your advice on this one. Well, it's interesting that it's uh, the gender roles you're talking about, because usually it's women complaining about men masturbating and say, <laughs> saying, shouldn't I satisfy all of his needs? Um, look, <laughs> masturbation and partner sex both involve the genitals, but they're very different experiences. In masturbation, you only have to please yourself. You don't have to negotiate anything with anyone else. And your own body gives you immediate feedback so you know what's working and what's not. Partner sex, as wonderful as it is, and I'm not knocking partner sex at all, but it takes more work. You have to declare what you like. You have to coach your lover to give you what you want. You have to ask your lover if you're doing what they want. Uh, you know, the frequent, uh, frequency issues are the number one complaint of long-term couples, desire differences. There's so many complications of mm. partner sex. And uh, sometimes people just want to take a little break for themselves and enjoy themselves. And that's fine. I mean, why stop going to the mountains once you've been to the beach? Why stop eating cherry pie once you've tasted apple? I mean, life has lots of different experiences to offer. And if people want to have solo sex, that is their right. People are having solo sex for years, usually before they met their spouses. And then what are they supposed to do? Just all of a sudden stop enjoying themselves? No, everyone has a right to masturbate. Uh, and I'd like to repeat that. Everyone has a right to self-pleasure and solo sex. It is not a reflection on the relationship, usually. I mean, sometimes it might be, but overwhelmingly yeah. it is not. And particularly, surveys have asked uh, uh, men and women how you deal with your stress. And 25% um, of women say they use masturbation to deal with their stress. 80% of men say they use masturbation to deal with their stress. So guys are out there yanking like crazy to deal with their stress, and it's no reflection on their relationship, none yeah. at all. And it works um, when women are the uh, wankers too. You know, it's funny because so many of the people that wrote in about, you know, asking questions for you, <laughs> the biggest thing was oh my God, do I have a sex addiction because I'm home so much and I can't control a lot of things going on in the world. I feel like almost every time I get a minute, I'm masturbating. What does he think of that? <laughs> well, um, I think that uh, you should try some lubricant so you don't chafe yourself on your sensitive genital skin. Uh, that's about it. I mean, there's a whole uh, chapter in, my, in Sizzling Sex for Life about the alleged phenomenon of sex addiction, which 
is cemented in the public mind. It's part of our lexicon. You know, people say, oh, I'm a Java junkie. I'm addicted to coffee. I'm, you know, I'm a chocoholic. I'm addicted to chocolate. People use the term addiction loosely. And so in that context, sex addiction basically means that people like sex a lot. It doesn't mean they're addicted. Mm. And um, there's a whole chapter in Sizzling Sex for Life that deals with uh, alleged sex addiction and sexual compulsivity and what to do about it. So, um, but for the average person who has a little extra time on their hands, you know, why not stroke? What's wrong with it? It's fine. Uh, plenty of people uh, self-sex daily. In fact, I have over the years, you know, I've answered 12,000, 15,000 sex questions, and, and I cannot tell you the number of men, usually, who have written into me something on the order of, you know, I have yanked so hard for so long, it's a miracle the thing is still attached. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. I've had men, dozens of men, spontaneously saying something like that. The fact is, it's anxiety about masturbation mm. that is more harmful than the masturbation itself. And so my uh, suggestion to people is uh, get a firm foundation in sex information, which you can get in my book, so yeah. you're comfortable with all aspects of sexuality. And then hopefully you'll be more comfortable with your own self-sexing, which is fine. Enjoy yourself. Relax. You want to pull on it? You want to stroke it? You want to rub one out? Be my guest. By the way, I sent several of these books to my friends for Valentine's Day. Oh, aren't you sweet? That's great. Yeah, for Valentine's Day. I thought it was a great thing. I mean, you answered so many questions. I felt like this could be their guidebook. You know, it was fun. Well, that's what Especially I'm hoping. my gals. I'm hoping that, uh, that sizzling sex resonates with people and answers their questions uh, and, um, and, and points the way to uh, accurate sex information and more fun and pleasure in their lives. Yes, yes. Oh, oh there's no doubt. There, it, it's awesome. It's no doubt. All right. So speaking of masturbation, <laughs> parents concerned about their kids. Have you heard that before? Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Um, about kids masturbating or just childhood sexuality in general? What do you want me to comment kids on? masturbating. Like, when is it too young? Oh, my gosh. I caught them playing with themselves. They shouldn't be doing that at this age. Yada, yada, yada. Um, well, first of all, let me uh, declare, sh share the fact that um, there have been video ultrasounds of fetuses in utero. In other words, these are developing fetuses. Uh, in the womb. And uh, the genders don't differentiate until uh, late in the genitals don't develop until the third trimester. And so ultrasound videos show third trimester fetuses, their little hands reaching down between their little legs no. and apparently stroking in the womb before they're even born. <laughs> so, you got to be kidding me. That's a hoot. Oh my gosh. Um, children. Children touch themselves all over. It's how they learn about the world that they live in and who they are. And children find their genitals. And when they find them, guess what? They like touching them. They like it a lot. And uh, almost all kids are, are enthusiastic masturbators. Um, and they only stop when adults say, don't do that. And in my book, there's a chapter about how to talk to your kids about sex. And one of the key elements is that parents should not say, don't masturbate, that that's harmful and can uh, reverberate to the to um, bad effect in the child's later life. What you should say is, look, touching your genitals is like going to the bathroom. Everybody does it. It's fine. But just do it behind closed doors. You don't do it in public. You don't pee in public. And you don't stroke yourself in public. But behind closed doors, feel free. It's fine. And, you know, have fun. I remember when my, he'll kill me, but my son was younger. He's now 17. He didn't understand why he couldn't do it in public. 
well, mom, it's very natural. What do my relatives care? And they're like, could you tell your son to just not do it in front of us? And I didn't know how to answer him. Yeah, that's uh, your situation is very common. Uh, like I said, kids love to masturbate. Why not? It's such fun. Uh, the thing is to just say, yes, it's pleasure, but it's a private pleasure. It's a private pleasure and leave it at that. And yeah. in our culture, it's a private pleasure. And uh uh, enjoy yourself, but just be respectful of other people, too. Yeah. So what age should they have their sex talk with their kids? Um, well, I'm glad you asked that question because it's it's um, not productive to just say we need to have the talk. Um, <laughs> yeah, parents the should talk. talk to their kids about sex all the time. Whenever a sexual subject comes up. It comes up in the news. It comes up in fashion. It comes up all... Sexuality is part of life, and it, it uh, comes into the conversation quite frequently. And whenever it does, parents should simply answer kids' questions as briefly and frankly as possible and leave it at that. You know, you don't have to go into big orations. You don't have to, you know, be make big yeah. speeches. Um and there's a section in, there's a chapter in um, Sizzling Sex for Life about how to talk to your uh, preschool kids about sex. Um, and then there's another chapter in the book about um, the failure, the abject total failure of sex education in public schools. The only thing that works to teach kids about sex is parents talking to their kids about sex. That's the one and only thing that really changes kids' behavior, makes them uh, postpone intercourse, and encourages them to use contraception. It's not abstinence only. It's not learning about the birth control methods in school. It's parents saying, look, I recognize that you're a sexual person. You're going to make your own decision about when to become sexual. But you have to understand that you don't want to get pregnant. You don't want to cause a pregnancy at your young age. So use birth control. When parents say that, kids, number one, they postpone first intercourse for about a year. So instead of, you know, at 15, they're doing it at like 16 or 17. And they're much more likely to use contraception. So uh, sex talks sh just should happen all the time. Um, yeah. you know, but uh, I got to tell you that in the sex business, we have, there's a, an old saying that there's only one thing worse than a parent who won't talk to you about sex. It's a parent who won't shut up about it. And uh, a lot of us in the sex field, you know, we harangue our kids about sex and they, my kids eventually said to me, dad, would you just shut up already? We know about it, you know, yeah, yeah. no way. Um, but the problem is that a lot of parents feel so tongue tied, they, they can't spit the words out. And for those folks, I suggest buying a copy of Sizzling Sex for Life and then hide it where your kids will find it. And then <laughs> it'll be a lot easier to talk to them once they've read it. You know what? I wish I would have had this book because all my son's friends, and uh, he's an only child, so we always had the group here. Their parents would send them to me to have any question they had about sex. I'm like, what? All right, if they want me... This is what I'm doing. And then they'd get mad and go, why did you tell them that? I'm like, you sent them to me. So if you don't like the way I'm just being framed and answer the questions, don't send them to me. But I, even the bravest, confident people I knew, they just couldn't talk to their kids about, it. not even about what a condom is or how to put it on. You know, um, it's difficult to talk to your kids about sex. I mean, I was I was a professional sex educator for more than a dozen years when I first had children, and it was hard for me. And I was thinking, God, if I if I'm having trouble, then you know, people who don't talk about sex for a living, they really have problems. I mean, the fact is, we live in a sex negative, sex repressed culture, and our culture is happy to talk about sex crimes and horrible things about sex and the dangers of sex and mm -hmm. diseases you can get from sex. But our culture is very weak on talking about sexual pleasure and sex as a normal everyday part of life. And parents, one of the tasks of parenthood is to somehow 
transcend cultural sex negativity and try and be real with your own kids. And if you have problems, that's why I wrote the book. Uh, there's a whole section on, on uh, uh, how to talk to your kids about sex, how to understand young adult sexual behavior, hooking up, all that kind of stuff. It's all covered. And the research is very clear that when parents are um, frank with their children about sex, about their own sexual values, whatever they may be, yeah, yeah, uh, kids listen and they take it in and they change their behavior. And I personally was skeptical of this when I, uh, when I delved into this research because I thought, you know, hell, my kids don't listen to me at all. But uh, <laughs> in fact, when parents talk about their values, kids want to hear about values from their parents and sexuality and sexual values is part of that. And the research is very clear. It's completely incontrovertible that when parents actually spit it out and talk about sex and their own values, kids listen and they change their behavior for the better. In fact, the rate of teen pregnancy is way down from what it was 30 years ago because AIDS scared the hell out of parents and they started talking to their kids about sex. I was wondering, because I've been reading that it's, you know, they're more conservative. Is that true? The kids nowadays are more conservative? Yes, absolutely. Kids today compared with, um, compared with uh, the gen my generation, people in their 60s and 70s, and compared yeah. with the generation of today's parents, people in their, you know, 30s and 40s, um, today's teenagers are less sexually active, and when they are sexually active, they are much more likely to use condoms. Hmm. And that's largely because parents had the hell scared out of them by AIDS, and they thought, oh my God, my kid could die. And so that got them to actually talk about sex, and the kids listened, and we have the result now, which is less sexual activity among teenagers and more use of condoms if they are. Okay, this is a question about Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, and yeah. You know, did it really help open the doors of all the things that are okay to do in the bedroom? Absolutely. Um, before really? Fifty Shades of Grey... You know, there's been uh, BDSM, bondage, discipline, and sadomasochism for hundreds of years. Uh, in fact, thousands. You can look at ancient Greek pottery and see uh, elements of BDSM in there. But um, until Fifty Shades, BDSM was considered a very a minority pleasure, a very small minority, and it was considered perverted, and, you know, people are weird, and, you know, whips and chains, and it's abusive, and all kinds of mythology. Um, Fifty Shades showed that um, BDSM is actually, it's theater, the actual scenes that get played out are very yeah. theatrical, and it's always based on clear consent and agreements and um, contracts like um, Christian Gray and Anastasia Steele sit down and he presents her with a contract proposal. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And, she, and and she reacts and says, okay, you can do this. I'll do that. I'm not comfortable with this thing. Let's wait a little on that thing. Um, BDSM is really about very intimate uh, sexual negotiation and um, and and really intimacy is about self-revelation and when you can reveal to someone I would like you to spank me and pull my hair but not hurt me too much and the other person says sure I'll do that I'll play that way that is such you feel so validated you feel so understood that people who are into BDSM uh, often say that um, it is the most intimate form of human interaction. And a lot of people, people I know in, in, who are into BDSM, uh, say they feel sorry for vanilla people. Vanilla means you're not into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, they feel sorry for vanilla people because the poor vanilla folks, they just can't understand what, what deep intimacy is. Mm. So Fifty Shades opened things up. And it also opened up sex research into uh, kink lifestyles. And it shows, the research is very clear that um, uh, a large proportion of the public has kinky fantasies. Mm. 
fantasies of being restrained or tied up or, you know, uh, uh, domin erotic domination and submission. It's very, these fantasies are very common. And um, actual BDSM is fairly common too. I mean, there are BDSM clubs in every major metropolitan area in the United States mm -hmm. and in many rural locations too. Uh, if you doubt me, I suggest that you uh, open up your browser, put in BDSM, and any locale, you'll be surprised how many hits come up. Yeah. Well, funny story, it, but it must have been, like we're talking 15 years ago. I was sitting watching a football game in uh, Philadelphia, and a friend of mine, she was a lawyer, uh, was sitting there with her laptop, and I said, what are you doing? She goes, oh, I'm booking appointments. I said, for what? And she's like, oh, you don't know what I do on the side makes great money. And she says, I provide, you know, BDSM. I go, okay. And it was like, just back then, 15 years, she's like, yeah. She's like, do you want to see? I go, no, no, no. I don't want to see your clients. She's like, well, most of them go to your gym and most of them are lawyers. But she's like, I have something to tell you. Many of them are married, but they would rather be doing it with their wife, but they're ashamed to ask their wife. Yep. And I found yep. that astonishing. Yes. Uh, well, there are many women who provide what are, what's known as pro-dom services, professional dominatrix. Uh, yes, that's what she was. Where men, uh, you know, men, the, the stereotype is that men crave power. And yes, many men crave power, but power often is enervating. It's, it's tiring. Pa pa people who have a lot of power um, often want to break from it. And uh, there was a, a book written many years ago um, that was interviews. Psychologists interviewed, uh, you know, about like 50 pro-doms and asked them who their clients were, not by name, but by occupation. Yeah, yeah. And over, overwhelmingly, the, um, the occupations were guys who had a lot of power, including members of Congress and federal judges and CEO types. Um, Power, you can get tired of, of wielding power, and sometimes you just want to be submissive and have somebody else have a little power over you in play, in play, which is what BDSM is, and pro-doms provide that for men who uh, want to experiment with uh, their submissive side. But what you were saying is it would be really awesome if they could talk to their wives about it, too, because they, they were embarrassed yeah, I mean, ideally, you know, you want to have um, open communication with your with your spouse, your main partner in life, but some people just can't spit out the words, and other people have been um, have been quieted by their spouse, who has told them spontaneously, "Oh, only perverts are into that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you know if so, they don't want to risk it. You know, marriage is fragile. Marriages are fragile, and uh, people don't want to risk uh, being um, dissed as perverted uh, when when they feel like their spouse just doesn't understand. And so it's it's easier emotionally sometimes to visit a pro dom. Yeah. Michael, this has been so great. I mean, I'm so excited to have you on the show, and I can't wait for them to get your book. And we're running out of time, and I had a million more questions people wanted to ask you, but the, I'm going to end it with this one. Does my Is my sex life going to change after menopause? I got so many of that. Yes, it is going to. Uh, it's going to change in part because you're getting older, and it's going to change in part because menopause itself changes sexuality. Uh, there's been a great deal of research on this, and it's focused on... Um, on what happens during the menopausal transition, which usually starts in the 40s and goes to the mid-50s. Menopause is not a moment, it's an era. And during the menopausal era, um, many women uh, suffer loss of libido. And this is the main thing, you know, besides hot flashes and things, uh, yeah. the main sexual impact is loss of libido. And some people wring their hands and go, oh my God, I'm menopausal. I'm never going to want sex again. That is not true. What happens is that um, the loss of libido is partly biological and partly psychological of women thinking, oh my God, now I'm really old, so I must be unattractive. 
no, that's not right. Older women are very attractive. Uh, my wife is uh, 68 years old, and let me tell you, she's a hottie. So um, the, uh, libido often rebounds for women who, are, who suffer menopausal libido loss. And the, um, the way to deal with menopause, there's a whole chapter in my book uh, about menopausal changes and how men can be supportive of women going through the menopausal transition because it happens at the same time, men are losing their erections. And so older couples need to negotiate uh, perhaps a slightly reduced sexual frequency often works. You know, people in their 40s, people under 45, um, generally, uh, you know, at any age, people have sex from never to daily. But um, in, in general, most people, the most common sexual frequency for people under 45 is about once a week, so about four times a month. Mm -hmm. After 45, it drops down to two or three times a month. And that's still regular sexuality. And um, some people may be frustrated with that. Others may be happy with it. But in general, older people have a little less sex. But if they focus on it and they focus on pleasure and they get away from intercourse and start enjoying outer course, older sex can be the best of your life, even if you're postmenopausal. Oh, I love that. And I love that you said several times about open heart coming to it with an open heart. That's, you know, you have to. I mean, sex is very deep inside people. It's a very intimate thing. And and uh, the problem is that there's so many stereotypes about women are supposedly this way, men are that way. You know, w women are from uh, Venus and men are from Mars. No, uh, men and women are from the planet in between those two. They're both from the earth mm. and they have to talk about it. Yeah. All right. Well, we have to go. But you know what, people? You got to get his book. Because if we didn't get to your question, almost I can guarantee that you're going to find it in his book. But Michael, we usually have a few rapid fire questions. Can I ask you some fun questions about you before we go? Sure. Number one, favorite color? Favorite color? Well, I'm sort of into the blues, I guess. Okay. If you were going to be an animal, what would it be and why? Uh, an animal. Well, um, I'm more of a cat person than a dog person. So I would say some kind of, you know, uh, uh, bobcat, wildcat. Gotcha. All right. Favorite food? Oh, well, they're, uh, um, I would have to say dark chocolate covered almonds. What would one of your favorite days look like from morning to night? What would you do if you could do anything? I would do yoga in the morning. I would write uh, until uh, through into lunch. Uh, I would have lunch with a friend or my wife. In the afternoon, I, I own some property, and so I, I have to uh, manage my apartment building, so I would do that for a little bit. And then... Um, uh, I often, uh, I listen to a lot of music and I would do some of that. And, uh, my wife and I are always working on some kind of TV series. We've been watching Outlander, which is a, uh, romance fiction uh, mm. series. Um, and I love the French village. That was a great one. French, uh, and oh, then, I didn't hear that. I got to write that down. French village. A French village is a fantastic, uh, seven season series about what happens when the Nazis invade this French village in 1940. It's unbelievably, Ooh. it's really deep. Yeah. My family's going to love that. All right, cool. Um, and, uh, and then I read, I read for pleasure. I'm reading a novel right now. Uh, uh, Burr by Gore Vidal, a wonderful book. If you've seen the uh, play Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, this, this is, this is, Aaron Burr's side of the story and Gore Vidal is wickedly funny in this thing. It's a hilarious book. I love, I'm loving it. That was my next question. One of your favorite books. So you got it in there. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I, I love Burr. I just read cast by Isabel Wilkerson about the roots of racism in America. Yeah. And that is a, I mean, you got to have a stiff drink before you read that book, but it's very, 
important and I um it's it's very it's really good. Okay, cast. Okay. What's something you can tell us about yourself that most people may not know? Well, let's see. I park at fire hydrants. <laughs> uh, Is I that live, true? Yes, I live in San Francisco where there's no parking. There's, there's just no parking in this town. And, um, you know, uh, fire hydrants were, were, you couldn't park at fire hydrants because back in the 19th century, uh, fire engines had to pull right up to the hydrant to connect for the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't have to do that anymore. They just run hoses. And so the prohibition of parking at fire hydrants has no public safety value at all. And um, in San Francisco, there's just nowhere else to park. And so I, I park at fire hydrants several times a week. I get about three tickets a year. They're $100 each. So I pay $300 a year. That's about $25 a month to have parking anywhere in town. And to me, it's worth it. I don't know if we should have told people your secret, but I love it. Oh, my God. Okay. A hobby. Something else you like to do in your free time besides reading and writing. Well, as I mentioned, I, uh, I do yoga daily and I love that, but, um, I garden, I garden my front and backyard. I have a vegetable garden. I'm growing lettuce uh, right now because it's, you know, um, it's early in the season. And so it's hard to grow other vegetables, but in San Francisco, you can grow lettuce, uh, starting in January and February. So I do that. And then I have a big, uh, garden out back. Mm. And uh, we're spending a lot more time out in the yard because of COVID and, and uh, entertaining in the backyard. And so I'm, I'm trying to uh, keep the uh, uh, garden uh, looking as good as possible. I love gardening. It's just so relaxing. But I, I'm in Philadelphia, so we got about 20 inches of snow right here. I have an herb garden inside, but that's it. All right. So, Mike, when I say the word universe, what does it mean to you? Universe. Well, I see this big, you know, nebulas and galaxies, and I think of Einstein, and that's what I think of. Cool. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Please tell everybody again, how can they find you, reach you, and where can they buy your book? Uh, Well, Sizzling Sex for Life is available uh, at booksellers everywhere. Amazon has it. And you can also go to my site, sizzlingsexforlife.com. And if you have any question about sex, I will answer it for free at greatsexguidance.com. All right, my let's keep it real people. I think you're going to say, Sandy, Michael Kassman definitely kept it real. Be sure to rate us and send it along to your friends. I know that you know people that could benefit from this show. And you know what I'm going to say? Until next time, toodles. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And remember, keep spreading the positive.